0: Hey guys, it's Rach and I am talking quietly again because it's very early morning in Switzerland now. Uh, Last week I was in London and now I'm in Switzerland. In fact, as I am recording this, I'm staring out the window at the Matterhorn, which is probably the most spectacular view I have ever seen in my life and I'm really blessed to get to be here and practice skiing and basically fall down a mountain over and over again if you want to check out more of what I'm learning while I'm here make sure you look at Instagram I made a reel about the process of doing things that terrify me because honestly skiing is terrifying I didn't grow up doing it and I fall a lot and I hurt myself a lot and I feel totally out of control I get super in my head and I didn't know this but when you ski in Europe it's not like skiing in Utah or mammoth if you ski in Switzerland it's literally like a cliff like if you go over the edge you're you're going over the side of a cliff it's pretty terrifying. All of that to say, I am checking in from my little ski vacation because we have a new mastermind episode. And this one is fantastic. I was actually reviewing it this morning before anyone else in the cabin woke up and I ended up listening to the whole thing just because the information was so incredible that I was like, you know what? I actually need this at the start of the year because today's conversation is all about focus. It's five different incredible experts, greg mckeown the author of essentialism we've got robin arzon my favorite peloton instructor we've got ben hardy oh my god dropping the most incredible wisdom i think his segment is like 45 minutes long because it was too good to cut down country music icon tim mcgraw and ken coleman like just freaking powerhouses sharing about how the power of focus, like what we look at, is so incredibly important to who we become you become what you think about most you become who you hang out with you become what you're focusing on and if you're starting this year really wanting to dial in to what your focus is as you head into 2023 this episode is gonna do it for you so i hope you enjoy today's mastermind session i'll be back later in the week with an update from switzerland and all that i'm learning but until then i love you and i'm rooting for you and let's get focused
1: I had a summer. I was at law school in England, and I quit after I was in the United States. And I had this Eureka moment: What would you do if you could do anything? And and as I'm answering that question, I realize it isn't law school. (laughs) If I could do anything, it wouldn't be doing what I was doing. So it was a key trade-off moment, strategic trade-off. Killed the one, didn't go back to law school. Went back to England. You know, decided okay, I'm going to apply uh, to to go to university in, in, in America. And, and get back here applied to, to, to BYU six months late didn't um, you know no way I was going to get in but then one thing after another happened and I did get in but while I was waiting for that decision to be made I was there was a summer and that summer I just spent entirely reading like I'm really serious 16 hours a day for probably two and a half months I was just completely submersed in wisdom literature and just it was like a layering experience because normally you read okay you read maybe you read half an hour a day or an hour a day or a couple of hours or one day even if you're studying at university you're doing a few hours maybe each day this was a a unique even now a totally unique experience there was no distraction there was nothing else I wasn't married I had no children it was just consumed with layer after layer of this thinking and it completely rewired me um in in a way that was um that was, yeah, it was totally life-changing. Uh I, I came, I came out of that with a, a sense of mission, a sense of identity, clearer identity, who I was and what I needed to do with my life. Uh, and and frankly, I think this whole corona period offers, of course, it's not a distraction for the environment. <laughs> it's probably the opposite of that, but it's still, it's still an opportunity for the same kind of um game changing reflection where you say, well, maybe I wouldn't have chosen it, but things have now been simplified. Maybe I wouldn't have chosen this thing, but maybe, you know, I've been laid off from it. I mean, all these things provide a break with the past and a chance for reflection. And that was really the deepest reflection period I would say of my whole life. Uh, and, and even now I can feel the, uh, the waves of, uh, of that experience you know still flowing out into in, into my life now we realize you can either choose to sort of focus on what's not going right what you don't have control over which pulls you into a whole spiral right i mean that that's that's of course it's more negative but it's also less empowered it, it's it's all of those things that's that's one option or you have a different choice which is focus on what is going right be grateful about what but anything you can be, in fact, and lean into it, and we realized quite quickly that that's the only viable option, yeah. and so we chose it, you know, fully. And that so what does that look like? Well, the, the it means you're thankful for music and you go and sing around the piano together. Uh, it means you you you're you're thankful for uh, for nature and you go out and have walks in nature. You and so in the midst of Certainly, what could have been the worst thing ever, um, we experienced, and I don't use this word lightly, joy, and um, and that was such a game changer to realize that even in life's crucibles, you you know, life can be really good, yeah. And it was like a magic, it was like magic what happened, it's quickly. There was like this this positivity bred more positivity bred bred you know greater faith greater hope a sense that the future was bright things were going it will, this is going to be okay don't worry about all the things you can't control have joy in this moment and and it multiplied and uh, and 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 great things happened to it. people friends friends called uh, you know the word went out and suddenly there's this legion of people sending positive feeling and actually praying, and we could feel that su- sustaining sense and, and the sense that it all would be well. Uh, a, a neurologist um, who had a nine-month waiting list, he is a specialist in movement disorders for pediatrics, which I'm just saying, like, those three make it an absurd level of speciality. Like almost nobody knows that. So that's why there's a nine month waiting list. He suddenly is available, he comes in. But even when he came, he's like two hours late for us in that appointment. I start thinking, oh, and start maybe feeling like complaining. And I did complain, my wife said, no, I'm thankful even for this because, and as she says it, she, she can have the insight. If, if he's late for us, it means he's with somebody else caring about them. When he comes to us, he'll be caring about Eve. It's gonna be okay. And when he did, that's exactly what it is. He brought a whole team with him, and he took a completely different approach to what was going on. And within, we spent hours with him that day and his team, and they had an insight—one key, tiny insight—in their approach that helped us to get her immediately hospitalised and, and so on. And, and I'll tell you, it didn't just stop there. There were in the week after she came home from the hospital. She's throwing up. She's still sick. We don't know what's, what, why that's happening. Then there's a mass shooting next to one of our daughters, close to where our daughter goes to school. The next day after the mass shooting, we have emergency evacuations because of the fires, uh, the, the, the fires that are happening in, in the Calabasas area where we live. Um, we wo- we- it, sounds, it sounds very, very first world problem here, but we have this idea we should go to Disneyland. That's where we should go. We are going to get out of here. We got to do something. We might as well go. It. So we go to Disneyland, and we, we some friends of ours have the same idea. They're there, and we bump. So they let us know they're coming. So we, we we end up in the same hotel with them. And then, while we're in the hotel with that extended family, my friend, his brother, who's there staying in the same hotel, dies. This <laughs> is all within one week of her being hospitalized. So I'm just trying to describe what I think the. I think the military would call a VUCA environment, right? Volatility, (laughs) uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. It's like, what are the principles that are essential in this environment? And and what, what I learned was this simple lesson. Here's what I learned. When we focus on what we lack, we lose what we have.
0: Yeah.
1: But when we focus on what we have, we gain what we lack. That's what I learned. The, 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 that, that family that we were with in the, in, in the hotel, we became bonded with, socially bonded, and still are to this day. Eve has recovered immensely. It's an ongoing process. It's, we're not, it's not all resolved, but we absolutely believe she will be completely, completely healed. Um, meanwhile, the culture that was created, the asset that was built in our family... Is, is, is actually different, right? Like it builds, I didn't have language for it at the time, but there's research to explain what was happening to us. And I can get to that if you're interested. We, we, we had this reserve built into our culture. And now with Corona coming along, two things I noticed. One is the culture's all there. So it, yeah. can, it has this resiliency that is so surprising. But there's, not, there's just genuine joy and happiness in the family. It's like, it's totally fine. And, and the, the reason I say all of this is because I think this can all be useful for any person going through this right now. This is the opportunity of a lifetime to build new capabilities and reserves that can help us thrive in whatever future challenge inevitably come along. You've got to start with the premise, which is that not everything is created equal. So you've got to kick out this old idea. It's, it, it, the harder part of becoming an essentialist, I think, is, is realizing how non-essentialist our current thinking is, the outside culture and also just our internal paradigm is so non-essentialist. Because this is the basic premise of non-essentialism is, is that everything is approximately of equal value. I just have to do it all. Have to do everything. So you're trying to do everything, but and and you feel overwhelmed from the set you wake up in the morning and you know that feeling when it all rushes at you. C.S. Lewis described that as like rushing at you like wild animals, just coming at you. And so that's all the burden, the overwhelm. Oh, there's so much to do. And in that moment, it's 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 like you have to you have to push it off and say, no, it's not all of equal value. It's not, I gotta push that back, all that noise, all those voices, so that I can hear that other voice, that quieter voice, that sense of, of, of internal direction that in my own life seems to know intuitively that only a few things really matter today. And, and those few things, if I do them, are so disproportionately valuable, they will change everything else. They are game-changing things. Especially if, it's, if I do this habitually, you know, over years. Push off all that non-essential noise, all that stuff that's coming at you. What really matters? And so I think that in that little moment, multiply that through years, that's what my wife and I have always been about. That was one of the unique things that drew us to each other in the beginning was an unders- a dual conviction that to discern and follow that voice of conscience was so much more valuable than that than doing a hundred other things you know like in fact we see it that that i would even describe it as a it's a mindset but it's also a skill set that skill set is like basically the essential job of parenting because what we want is to inculcate that way of making decisions into our children or at least remove all the obstacles, all the non-essential voices and junk and noise so that they can start to hear it themselves and then be led by it. Because if you do that, then that's the, the job of parenting is done. Our job of 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 guidance and, and nurturing and leading. No, the leading is coming from within now. They're leading, they're guiding, they're able to make decisions. They they can become essentialists in their own right and so to to us that's the core the very essence of essentialism is really that and so our highest priority in life both as parents but also as individuals everybody listening to this the highest priority is to protect the ability to prioritize meaning to protect nurture educate that voice of conscience so that it can be the guiding force rather than just what everybody else is doing and a fear of missing out and all the noise on social media and all the latest to have headlines in, in news and all of that, those voices, you get to push all of that out and be led by something different. This is so real for so many people right now. The, 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 way, the phrase I would use for this is something called protect the asset, right? That's the language, protect the asset. And, and your primary asset, I've already kind of led the case for this, but your primary asset is your ability to prioritize, that ability to discern and focus what really matters most. That is the highest priority out of many other competing activities. And that's why we rest. That's why we need to, I mean, I can list a few other things that that are helpful to me. That's why I journal. If I'm starting to go crazy, I want to journal for a while. Just get it all out of my head, especially write what I'm grateful for, because it because it starts to help you see, oh, I'm not behind. Look at all these good things, look at all these assets. Um, but, but there are lots of things we do so that we can protect the asset of discernment, of prioritization, so that you don't get burned out and make worse decisions over time uh, that pull you down into the cycle.
0: Luxury is meant to be livable. for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right.
2: Having a conversation is where the world begins to even out yeah. because anybody can use a conversation as a wonderful learning tool, and it could be one question, one comment that changes your trajectory. Mm-hmm. And anybody, anywhere, can have a conversation. It doesn't have to be with the best-selling author, uh, you know, or a thought leader, but just the idea of how can I learn, who can I learn from, and if you constantly have that radar up. I think it is the ultimate game changer. It can put you on even footing with anybody in the world. You have to retreat to the why, because beyond the details of the career and what you've been doing, there's ultimately always a why. And, and so I had the opportunity when I'm wrestling with all this to meet with a well-known life coach who gave me a lot of the material that I use today on the Ken Coleman show. And here's what happened. So I realized that that I had a public call that I wanted to use my abilities of communication and discernment, um, to communicate on behalf of people. And so when it wasn't politics, it really threw me that I had to retreat and this guy, Pete, we met for two or three sessions and then I just spent a lot of time alone looking into the why, why did I want to go into politics? And it came back to realizing what I believe every person has. and That's a primary role. So if you've you've been going one way and all of a sudden it's clear that that's not it, retreat back to the one thing that will get you the most clear. And many times that's why do I think I'm here or what is my primary role? So for me, Rachel, my primary role is performer. Now my secondary role is coach. So I have to always be in a situation where I am performing but I'm performing to coach. not. That's why I'm not doing sports radio. I love sports. I could talk football all day long. But if I was doing sports radio today, I would feel empty in about six weeks mm-hmm. because I would be performing, but I would not be performing for the purpose of coaching. So you have to retreat back to the why. So
0: good.
2: And, and so when you get to the why, you say, well, why did I want to go into politics? So you've got to dig really deep. And so what you're looking for there practically are patterns, clues. As I tell my callers on the Ken Coleman show, let's look for clues. So there's three basic questions that I'll give uh, your audience. When you're trying to get clarity on why ask these three questions, who do I most want to help? Second question is what problem do I most want to solve? And the third question is what solution do I most want to provide? Now, your audience, they know that that's basically the same question. It's asked three different ways because it's a psychological technique, and it's trying to get your brain and your heart to connect. And so when you focus on that, really get deep. Imagine the people. Who are they? What do they look like? What are their problems? But this exercise, Rachel, those three questions, if you really write them down and write out the answers, I'm a pencil guy because I believe in writing in pencil – Write it down one night before you go to bed. Wake up the next morning. Get quiet before the hubs, the kids, whoever else is involved is up. And look at it, erase it, rewrite it. And what will happen over time, your heart will continue to clarify it. And so that's what you do when you feel like you've got some redirection coming in your life. Retreat to your why because that's always going to give you the most clarity. Five causes that makes you feel burned out, but you're only burned out, as cheesy as this sounds, no one is burned out until you 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 die. That's when the flame is extinguished. If you're alive and listening right now, you have a fire. I think it's covered up by a lot of junk. Here's five things. Number one, you don't have any passion for the job. So what Rachel was just talking about, you, you, you just don't love the work. You're good at it, but you don't love it. And 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 so that's number one reason for buildup. Number two, toxic environment, nasty, mean, backbiting, gossiping people around you, or a really bad leader uh, toxic toxicity causes buildup. The third thing is, uh, you're overwhelmed. You don't know how to say no, or you're so valuable that people just keep piling stuff on you and you can barely breathe. And so I don't care how much you love your work, Rachel, if you come into the office on Monday morning, and and as soon as you step in, you're trying not to drown, that's going to cause buildup on the heart. The fourth cause of buildup, uh, is 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 being underappreciated. So uh, we know from HR studies that the number one thing that employees want is recognition and reward, not compensation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The guy and lady out there is a little boy and a little girl who just wants to hear, had a boy, had a girl, yep. good job. Uh, and then the fifth thing is you're bored. So we see this with a lot of high achievers. They'll call my show and they'll say, Ken, I I feel like I got to switch careers, but I don't know what to switch to. And I always want to say, well, why do you want to switch? And if I find out that they're bored, it's like you're doing the right thing in the wrong place. You need a new challenge, but you don't need to do new work. You love the work. You loved it about 10 months ago, but you mastered it. Now you're bored out of your skull.
0: Yeah, that's good.
2: I think those are the five causes. I think there's probably more, but those are the five that I've identified from my callers. And I'm so glad you bring up burnout. And so what happens when, when one of... or or all five of those could be at play. What do you do? Well, you've got to diagnose one of those five things. Then the practical thing you've got to do is, okay, well, I've got to alleviate that. So so if I'm in a toxic culture, I can get this from teachers a lot. Well, I'm not going to give up teaching. I want to teach young people. I want to instruct and guide the next generation. Well, let's do it somewhere else. And, And so we're doing the right thing in the wrong place. So whatever it is, any of those five, we go, okay, that's the problem. So now I know how to alleviate that problem. And most of the time, you're going to have to change locations. But it's not always changing careers. That's a really big mistake a lot of people make. And then they call and go, oh, I thought it was this. And now it's not. And then they retreat back to the one thing they really love, but now in the right environment. The proximity principle says in order to do what you want to do, you've got to be around people that are doing it and in places where it is happening. So the idea here is we take this colloquialism that's been around for a long time. It's not what you know, it's who you know. That's not really true, but there's a lot of truth to it. And what we're saying is that proximity positions me where I need to be and propels me to where I want to be. How? By the simple formula of the right people plus the right places equals opportunity. When I'm around the right people, I'm going to learn what I need to learn. Yeah. I'm going to have a chance to do what I want to do. And I'm going to get a chance to connect with more of the right people. And they show me the places and it becomes this cycle of success. The most valuable thing you can do for a person is to show them value, Mm -hmm. show them that you think they're valuable. So for instance, when I got a chance to sit down with some of these people and I would always have a mutual connection. If I didn't have a one-to-one Rachel, I always had somebody else who had a good relationship say, listen, I know this guy Ken Coleman, sharp young guy, really hungry. He wants to buy your lunch or coffee and literally ask you some questions. That's uh, all he wants. He he just really wants your insight uh, and and thinks that you're a valuable resource. So it would always be set up that way, and then the person would say yes, and I would always show up with something to write with. I always had a pencil and a and a moleskin. That's my jam. Mm-hmm. And and I would always start off by going super enthusiastic. Hey. First of all, I know your most valuable commodity is your time, and you're giving to me your most valuable commodity. So number one, I'm beyond grateful. I don't want to waste it. I admire you. I look up to you. And I've got some questions I'd like to ask you. I just want to go to school on you if you're good with that. Now, let me tell you something, Rachel. There's not a person on the planet who's not going to feel valuable when you talk to them that way. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to share their opinion. I promise. (laughs) Yes. You know? And, And so it's not fake. But just go to school, and so never was saying things like, "Hey, I think I'm, I think I'm a really good communicator. I I think I can do this." I never would say that. I would say, "Here's the deal. Uh, This is what I want to do, and this is why I want to do it. And I, I want to ask you some questions because I, I just think you have some valuable knowledge and wisdom. So, here we go. And I would ask questions. I would, my body language would say." I am a human sponge and you're dropping the formula to cold fusion on me. That's what my body (laughs) language would say. Yes. Oh,
0: yes. It's so real.
2: Because this works, folks. I mean, if you're on the other side of this and you've got a, and you're the young Ken Coleman, you're asking questions, the person you're asking is going to feel valuable. And so you don't have to do anything for them. That's the big myth. Because by the way, you can't.
0: Yep. And but this is a this is an old John uh, old John Maxwell quote from I don't even who knows what book but his thing was always it might have been invaluable laws of growth was if yep. you get a chance to meet with someone and it's like mm-hmm. a meeting that you need you should prepare twice as long you should take the amount of time you're getting with that person and prepare twice that number to meet with them so you got 30 minutes you better prepare for an hour for those mm-hmm. 30 minutes because that's how seriously you need to take that other person's
2: time That's exactly right. And here's what I found. These people's time is very valuable, but you'd be surprised how many times at the end of these conversations, they would say, Hey, I'd be happy to get together again. Yeah. Why? Because they knew that I genuinely wanted to learn from them and I never asked them for anything.
0: Preach. Yes.
2: I might've said, Hey, uh, well, I actually write about this in the book. You do. The only thing you need to ask for in these meetings is, Hey, who else would you recommend that I sit with?
0: Great question.
2: Because now they know that you're not a uh, vulture. Yeah. <laughs> right? They know that you're not there just for you and just your advancement. You're there to learn. They've seen your hunger. They've seen your humility and your gratitude. Now they're going to go, oh, absolutely. Uh, let me tell you about this person. In fact, I'll make the introduction.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, say to them, what are some places? Where can I go that you think maybe I could uh, audit? a class or, or, or follow somebody around, shadow them around for a day. People forget that this still exists. You know, in early American, I'm a history geek, so I'll say this really fast.
0: I am too. So I'm here for
2: it. Okay, great. So in the early American economy, we all learned about this in school, but we've kind of forgot that America was built on the apprenticeship. Yep. Well, so one of the most valuable things I did early in my career, we hadn't gotten there to the story but I was in a real season of down, and I walked in off the street one day to the number one sports talk radio station in Atlanta, and I asked to talk to the program director. He came out, and I said, hey, and I, I went really fast and said, hey, I make six figures. I don't want a job. I don't want any money. I want to intern here. I'll do anything. I just want to learn more about broadcasting. The guy looked at me like I had four heads. <laughs> but then he was like, okay. You're not a nut job. You didn't ask me for any money. You want to volunteer? Sure. So I spent three days a week, Rachel, three hours a day of those three days for six months. And I to this that. day, the biggest breaks I got early on were from that experience where I was getting Sprite <laughs> for the guy who was on air, and he may have been making 60000 Wow. So humble yourself, number one. Number two, have some audacity to say, can I shadow? I don't need any money. I'll be quiet, and you'd be surprised what people will say yes to. And so that's a form of the apprenticeship. The free labor is some of the best strategy that I could give anybody when you're trying to switch careers because it's so crazy valuable. It is proximity at its purest form. You're going to learn about the craft. You're going to get clarity, as I said earlier, and you're going to meet people. And that's what it's about, being willing to volunteer. To, It's one of the places in the book, and that's just a place to learn. We just want to get in and be human sponges.
0: I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
3: For a really long time the whole field of psychology was really obsessed with the past. If you think about it, like Freud, it's like sit on the couch, let's talk about your past. Let's work through the trauma. Let's go all let's let, let's hear your story and most psychologists and even most psychological theories for a really long time thought that human beings were basically the byproduct of their own past, which is there's still a lot of truth to that. But what modern research is showing is that human beings actually spend way more time thinking about the future than the past. We actually think about our own future at least two to three times, probably two to five times more than we think about our past. We're Mm. we're regularly thinking about the future. Um, That's actually called prospection. We're, We're always thinking about our future and kind of where we're wanting it to go. And then ultimately, we get committed to that future. And so like one, I guess one important Thing. And then we can kind of talk about ultimately how he got all committed to that and ultimately shifted himself and started being his future self, which is really how he got there, was just that prospection is based on an idea that everything we do as a human being is driven by a goal. So like if someone is listening to this conversation, it's because even if reactively they had the goal to listen to it, they maybe came across their newsfeed, but they decided, OK, I want to turn this on you and I at some point had the goal of getting this conversation together, which is how I ended up here in Texas. Yeah. And so everything we do is driven by a goal, even just me getting up and going to the fridge or me picking this thing up. Like, And so oh we're God. all driven by a future. But a big challenge is, is that most people's futures are very short term. It's mm. like get to the end of the day, get the kids to school, get the groceries, get the bills paid. Like it's just kind of like an urgent future that's coming at you like a fire hose. And so there's one of my favorite quotes is from Robert Green and 50 Cent. And I think I put it literally <laughs> twice in the book. But it's, you know, basically the idea is, is that by our nature as rational conscious creatures, we cannot help but think of the future. But most people out of fear limit their views of the future to a narrow range. Thoughts of tomorrow, a few weeks ahead, perhaps a vague plan for the months to come. We're generally dealing with so many immediate battles that it is hard for us to lift our gaze above the moment. It is a law of power, however, that the further and deeper we contemplate the future, the greater our capacity to shape it. So one thing that's really interesting is your identity as a human being is what you're most committed to. So as humans, whatever you're most committed to is your identity. Um, so your identity could be, and you can know your identity by just simply observing your behavior. Like, you Identity
0: know, meaning who you perceive yourself to be.
3: Yeah how you see the world so you, however you see the world is based on how you identify with the world mm-hmm. and so if you and, and then you can and then your identity is the thing that funnels your behavior so and
0: and just real quick yeah, go ahead. because imagine that listeners are totally unfamiliar with this i'm like yep, 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 yep. so excited right now cuz i'm going to geek out with you so hard sure, sure. but identity is something that we can cultivate and choose and work towards in ourselves but if that's not something if you haven't learned if you haven't read all the books that you've yeah, 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 read yeah, sure, sure. then can you explain how an identity is most commonly created like we're living out the story of our family of origin we're living yeah, yeah. out our environment
3: and I'll try to pull this back to the idea of failing at the level of your future self but
0: Oh, yeah. Hold on. That, I can't even, I'm like so pumped because I said this quote a million (laughs) times. I told my boyfriend, I told my friends, I kept sending it to people. Literally one of my favorite quotes ever in the book slash in life is, and forgive me because I'm probably going to misquote you, but it was like, I would rather fail as my future self than succeed as my current one.
3: Yeah. What?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Then that. I honestly I, I forgot that I was telling everybody for weeks I would rather fail as my future self. Okay, I'm getting I need a notepad because I'm so excited to talk to you that I'm gonna forget. I, I usually
3: <laughs> have a journal with me and my journal's over there. <laughs>
0: we're like, okay, don't forget to come back, but I'll 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 we'll, keep we'll, on track. we'll
3: we'll bring it over to there. Right. So here's what's really interesting. So back to the idea of prospection, and I'll connect that with identity, and then I'll connect that with failing as your future self. So prospection means that as people we're being literally we're literally being pulled forward. By the future that we're most committed to, but if you observe how most people's behavior is, most people are committed to very short-term goals. Meaning, it's kind of like a, a hamster wheel. Just it's kind of repetitious every week. You know, get to work, pay the bills, get the groceries, like get the gas in the car. Those are all goals. Like if if my car is low in gas, like I got to go fill it up. Therefore, that's going to drive my behavior to like get to the gas station and fill it up. And so. Basically, in other words, our our identity is driven by the goals we're most committed to. You know, it could be me hanging out with my kids. You know, I want to go to my kids' baseball game. Like, that's part of my identity. And so, your identity is what you're most committed to as a person. And you can see your identity by observing your own behavior. um, Because your identity. So, basically, just the idea is, is that your identity is being driven by the future that you're most committed to. And so, to change your identity, it takes getting committed to new goals, essentially getting committed to a new, like something new. For me, like I'm very committed right now to writing the book I'm writing, like that's driving everything I'm thinking about and doing. But I may my future self may have totally different goals. You know, I might not even be interested in writing books in the future. Like maybe I've gone through experiences that I value something different, (laughs) you know. So anyways, to the idea of failing as your future self and why this is I think more interesting than succeeding as your f- current self. Basically, I'll, I'll give two ideas. One is deliberate practice, and then one is what I call investment and loss. And actually, I didn't even call it that. That's what Josh Waitzkin called it in the book, The Art of Learning, which is a great book. Have you ever read that one, by <laughs> the way? Such a good book. So okay. he calls it investment and loss. But de- de- deliberate practice is basically just, you've heard of this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very famous idea yeah. in psychology. But basically, it's practicing above your skill level. Like doing any project that's way above your skill level you fail a lot along the way because right. you're trying at the level of the project and you're right here.
0: Right. You're it's like playing basketball with people who are way better at basketball than you are or yeah. soccer or yeah. any sort of sport. You're challenging yourself yeah. to get in that environment and it forces you to go higher than you would have if you were playing with people at your own level.
3: Yeah. So basically in order to deliberate practice, you have to have a specific goal. And in order to do it well, even research shows you have to have a clear view of your future self. So like say, even me right now, like I could be a lot better of a dad. <laughs> and yeah, so we like, all could be and better. so if I want to deliberately practice as a really good dad, you know, maybe I'm not quite as patient, or maybe my kids don't feel as much love as I want them to feel. I would need to actually make that something I really want and something I see for myself, my future self and see that me and my kids have this amazing relationship. And then I need to start playing at that level now being as my future self. So like, yeah, I'll probably make a lot of mistakes because honestly, right now I don't have the skills to do it at the level I want it to. And so it will, I'll be failing a lot, being and trying as my future self, which is actually deliberately practicing. I'm actually thoughtfully, consciously trying to be uh, at the level of my goal. And then what Josh Waitzkin called it, what I just loved is he calls it investing in loss, which is kind of what you were talking about. Like you're playing with people, you know, it could be basketball, you're practicing with people way above your skill level. So you're going to lose a lot, but that's how you get really good if you're just flowing with it. So it's just playing at the level of your future self rather than winning, I guess you could say, at the level of your current self. Oh,
0: so freaking good.
3: So one idea of looking at it is raise your floor. Like we all have a floor and a ceiling, right? And so like one thing you could do is like, let's just say you're a consultant or something and you charge a certain level. Like now moving forward, you've just doubled your price and now you don't accept any any consulting fees at the old price. And maybe Mm -hmm. you're now getting rejected a lot at the new price, but you've made that the new standard. And so now that's kind of failing at the new level, but you've, you've, you've made that the new standard. And so now you stop saying yes at the level of your current self, which is maybe your current consulting fee. And so it's just raising the floor and then learning how to kind of get your life, your skills, your abilities, or your reputation or whatever to that new level. That's, That's one example. Your standard and your identity could be like standard, identity, and commitment are three words basically saying the same thing. Your standards are your identity. So if you keep going back and saying yes, then that shows that that's what you're committed to. Yeah. And so if you say this, this is what now I'm going to do and I'm committed to this, and you start saying no to anything below that standard now, then you find a way to get yeses at the new standard. And that's, that's where you're starting to fail as your future self. Um, Dan Sullivan actually has a really, like, beautiful little model for this. He calls it the Four C's formula. First, you commit 100% to something specific, and then the commitment leads to courage because you're committing above your current capability and skill and knowledge. You know, you're committing above that. So let's just say, you just as a consultant or a young, you know, maybe this pot, <laughs> the ceramics lady, now just raises the prices enormously, which is going to be scary for her, and she doesn't know if she can actually sell these pots at this price. And so that leads to courage. First off, it's just scary to make a commitment and then to fail, figuring out how to fulfill that commitment, that courage cycle of where you're trying and failing as your future self, that ultimately leads to you eventually developing capability, which is the third C. And as you develop higher levels of skill, knowledge, uh, expertise or whatever, then you have new levels of confidence, which is the fourth C. So good. And so, yeah, it, it takes committing first and then that commitment leads to massive courage, and courage, from like a psychology standpoint, is the willingness to try something that might not work. Um, you're actually trying something that, yeah, it might not work. And a lot of people, they don't want that. They want the promise of the result before they'll try. But yeah. Courage is, I'm going to try this. I'm going to I'm going to adapt. I'm going to get fast feedback loops. I'm going to figure this out along the way. And then as you do that, you develop skills your past self didn't have, perspectives your past self didn't have, and then you now are producing results that your past self couldn't have. And so the results are what create the confidence. One of the big findings, I guess you could say, of researchers on the topic of future self, is that most people, if they look back at who they were ten years ago, they can easily see differences. Like if I if I if I was to like literally if I was sitting down with the version of you ten years ago, we'd probably be having a little bit of a different conversation. Absolutely. Right?
0: Oh my God. Yeah.
3: Like you had a different philosophy. You had so many, you did so many of the experiences and, and things you care about now, your past self just simply didn't have. And so it's, you had a different identity, you had different goals, you had different perspectives. And so you had different tastes, maybe even in little things like music or food or things like that. So you were, you're, if it, so basically a key idea is, is just as people, if we look back on who we were five, 10 years ago, even a year ago, especially if you're someone who's learning and growing you can see massive changes. And actually, I don't want to go too deep into the gap in the game, but this is why I love that concept is every week I can look back and say, okay, I'm not the same person. Yeah. But the really interesting aspect is that even after I've talked to you about this and even after I've even thought about it and seen, wow, 10 years ago, yeah. Like if I really got down to the nuts and bolts, I'm a totally different person. I, I see the world differently. I operate in the world differently. I have a different situation. Like my past self couldn't even have comprehended uh, the normal life that I have. So even after people have done that, when they're projecting forth their future self, even 10 years or more into the future, they don't apply the same principle. Um, what they do is is they assume that their future self is essentially the same person they are today, that they'll that their future self have the same tastes, interests, values, goals, personality, even when the truth is, and, and the psycholo- psychological term for that is the end of history illusion. Just It's the belief that you won't change very much in the future when in fact, your future self is going to be just as different to you now as you are to your former self. And so it's a key like mm. insight to realize your future self is extremely different. They're a different person than you. They see things differently. They care about different things. They have different perspectives, goals, totally different way of even operating in the world. The reason that's helpful, especially to the idea of failing, is that your current self, actually Daniel Gilbert, who's the Harvard psychologist, and if anyone wants like a little bit of a deeper dive on this, He gave a main stage TED talk called The Psychology of Your Future Self in 2014. But one of the things he says is is that your present self is present and fleeting as the present moment. And so why I like this, and it connects actually with a lot of research, but one is I love the quote from Brene Brown. She says, either you're trying to be right or you're trying to get it right. And if you're trying to be right, you're actually trying to prove your current self's perspectives. Mm. If I'm trying to be right, I'm like really trying to like say, I got this. I know this. When it's like, if you're trying to get it right, you know that your current self is as temporary and fleeting as the present moment. My future self in a week from now is going to have way better perspectives than me. They're going to know more than me. My current self is, in a lot of ways, always a dumpster fire. <laughs> Honestly, like, no, seriously, like my current self, like I'm in the middle of writing a book right now. It's, it's totally trash. Like even me trying to like get my health right or get my kids right. Like your current self is always an evolving state and your future self is always going to be different And kind of the key aspect of the fixed mindset versus growth mindset is the fixed mindset is someone who's completely overly solidified and identified with who they currently are. And they said, this is who I am. This is who I'm always going to be. And people with a fixed mindset perceive their future self to be the same person they are today. They think that they are the finished product. Actually, that's one thing that Daniel Gilbert said is he says, human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. And so if you have a growth mindset, you know that your future self is going to be wildly different than you are today. They're going to see the world differently. They're going to have figured out a lot of things you don't have figured out. They'll have skills. You know, maybe your future self can speak Spanish. Maybe you don't have business right now, but maybe your future self is like an insane leader, right? So it allows you to not worry about failing because your current self is so temporary. Like, I don't, you know, I'm not attached to my current self. My current self, like after this conversation, I'll have perspectives where it's like, yeah, I could have said things a lot differently. Who cares? Right. You know, it just allows you a ton of freedom and flexibility in the moment because you're not trying to prove yourself your current self doesn't have it all, your future self will have it better. Have you ever read the book Awareness by Anthony DeMello? Mm-mm. Such a good book. Okay. But one of the things he talks about is no longer being emotionally dependent on anything. Emotionally dependent means if if you believe that, for example, you're unhappy because your boyfriend acts a certain way, then you're emotionally dependent on him acting a certain way. Yes. Right. And so I think one of the things that's helped me with that is realizing, like, it's an inside game and living and let live in a lot of ways. So, like, obviously you can communicate, you can talk to people, you can, you know, obviously it's it's far easier if people have a shared vision, like, in terms of a long-term relationship, business relationship, like, partners and stuff like that. Like, once the visions actually start to go different directions, that's usually when things go south, or, yeah. or, or or at least honestly, just maybe south is the wrong way of saying it, but tension
0: like, for sure.
3: Well, yeah, like once the visions are, are no longer aligned, and people are no longer working in a shared direction, then you have to assess like, is this, are we still committed to the same thing? And if not, like, has the relationship ran its course, you have to ask yourself, you first have to think about the situation, the context, like, if that was really me, what would my life actually look like? I'd probably be more around runner type people. Like, you know, like your life would actually be different. And so the sooner you can be honest with what you want and be honest with other people about what you want, often that often it can create tension, I guess, but it just, it it repels the people who just don't want it. Yeah. Like, because they don't want it. And so one of the reasons why I, I think it's good to visualize the future stuff, but also like, what does life actually look like if that's true? And then the sooner you start being honest with that to yourself and other people and start creating that, start being that person now, you know, getting the friends that go running, committing to that kind of thing, it's pretty organic. 10x is usually looked at as the end. Like it's usually the target. You know, like I wanna go from making 100,000 to a million, right? And it's also usually looked at purely quantitatively, like in numbers. But usually the 10x is actually qualitative, it's a transformation. You're a different person, uh, and you had to have become a different person to make that quantitative jump. So like I look at 10X as like being able to do something fundamentally different from what you could do before. So like a child going from like crawling to walking is like a qualitative jump. They are now doing things their past self couldn't do. I was just barely like with my family and my younger is supposed to live with my dad. So like going from living with your parents to like living on your own is a massive 10X jump. Like it's a qualitative jump. You're now operating differently than you were before and you had to learn skills and take on responsibility that you didn't have before. Well, one of the things we talk about in the book, we kind of use the 80-20 principle. That if you want to go for 2x, which is pretty much just like linear marginal growth, you can keep 80% of your existing self. You only have to change 20%. So, so listen to this. So, like, If you want to go for 2x, you don't have to change very much. It's really just dragging the past into the future. It's doing more of what you're doing. It's not very inspiring. It doesn't in- require change. It's often actually the avoidance of change. And it's more linear. Whereas if you want to go 10x and you want to make a massive transformation, looking at it more qualitatively, that you transform and become fundamentally different, and you can do different things than your past self could do. You can only keep the best 20% of what you're currently doing. Actually, 80% of your current life is a radical distraction from 10x. 80% wouldn't scale. 80% of your current clients, 80% of your current business, 80% of your current habits. All of that is what got you here, and it's what you love. Actually, I was just listening to this interesting interview from... Uh, Jordan Peterson, and he talked about how he he says commitment and sacrifice are the exact same thing. But in order to commit to something, you have to sacrifice almost everything else for it. But how I look at it is, and he talked about how the thing you must sacrifice is the thing you actually love most right now. Let Let me be clear.
0: Yeah, I, I, I know I you Yeah. He's kind
3: of, <laughs> let me give an example. So I'm talking about the eighty percent of things that. Are you know if you're thinking about it just in terms of a business like there's eighty percent of things right now going on that aren't going to go to ten x and so you have to identify what is the what are the one or two things this is actually one of the really beautiful reasons about making a vision very big is that the bigger you make it the the more honest you have to be that most of the things aren't going to get you there if you actually have a small vision like maybe I want to grow by ten percent there's like literally a thousand options you could do by for to grow yeah and so it creates complexity whereas if you Go really high and you think really big, it forces simplicity that almost nothing will work. Almost everything I'm doing won't get me there. I'm I'm juggling like 10 different things. Maybe the best one. Maybe if I, you know, in my case as a writer, maybe I really need to spend a lot more time thinking and like I need to write 10 times better books. Like, you know, you you have to be really honest that like there's only a few things that would get you to 10x and, and almost everything that is here right now won't get you there. The only reason I bring that up is that anyone who's made a big jump in their life, call it, you know, started a business or like got in really good shape, they made a big jump and they had to give up a lot of their past self, even a lot of the things they loved. Maybe they freaking loved certain really unhealthy things. Yeah. Like, and so you have to let go of some of those things you love most because those are the things tied to the current identity, not the future self. Right. And I think every time you... Make a massive jump in your life. It comes by stripping more and more away. You sim- how Dan says it is: you simplify before you multiply. So you actually have to simplify down to that core twenty percent. You have to be honest. What is the ten x, or what is my future self? How you can call it whatever you want, but it's it's it is a leap, and it, and you are different at that stage. And if you actually go for one of those leaps, not only will you be different, everything in your cycle, everything in your system will be different around you. Um, Some of those people will probably be the same, but they'll be in your system. They'll be different too, um, because you'll be different. They'll be different. But you have to clarify and be honest. One of my favorite quotes, which I actually share in, I think probably both books, because it's honestly my favorite quote, is uh, we're kept from our goal, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to lesser goals. So we're kept from our goal, whatever it is, not by the obstacles that are kind of going to be tough to get through. It's by a clear path to lesser goals that we ultimately keep saying yes to. Those are those 80% things that we're still entertaining. Maybe it's we keep saying yes to certain friends or to certain gigs or to certain bad habits whatever it is like those are the things that we keep holding on to that are keeping us who we are which is fine and we love those things those are those are, but every time you go up you actually are like stripping more away from the david and so you're getting simpler and simpler and simpler every time you go up um, but as you go simpler in who you are actually uh your influence multiplies externally and so like every time you you go up you do less things yeah you know like it's like maybe in the past you were running all aspects of the business. Like, but to make a 10x jump, you have to really learn how to delegate. And like you just focus on like the three or four things that are important. And then you go up again, simpler. It's like, no, this is what you do. And you got to get really good at this. And you got to go deep on this. And like you do less and less. And you actually become simpler as a person, too. It's more of a stripping away. And you really get to know yourself more and more as you do it. And so it's really, at the end of the day, you being honest with yourself and honest with those around you. And I think that um, one thing that helps is, um, like for me, I guess you're just being more and more genuine to who you are and letting other people be the same. And the people that resonate and continue on the journey will continue on the journey. And the others, there's no judgment. Their future self's in a different direction. That's okay. You. And, and even one thing you said that was interesting is is like sometimes people are on a higher level than you at a certain point, but you can never predict who someone's future self will be. Like I remember when I was writing on Medium and I was like the big writer on Medium and there were like these, you know, little writers who were just starting, you know, and now they're, like, massively. That writer was
0: Stephen King.
3: <laughs> exactly. Like, now, no, but seriously, like, yeah. some of those writers who are, like, I was not paying attention to, like, now they're massively bigger uh, authors than me. I know, and vice versa. Some of my mentors now, like, are being mentored by yeah. me. And so, like, I guess never judge someone's current self, right? Oh, yeah. Because, like, their future self could be and will be wildly different. But, um, yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's, a, I actually think it's beautiful. And I I've, I'm learning more and more to be less judgmental. Or it's like, it's okay if my path with someone else is going in different directions, that they have different goals than I now have. And for the people who I want to continue with, it's an ongoing conversation, their goals, my goals, and uh, striving to make it work, as you said, make the dream work, you know, yeah. as people who we mostly are is what we're going for. Seriously, like who you are right now is what you're going for. That's why, you know, that quote from Robert Green and stuff that we're generally dealing with so many immediate battles, like, if you're just going for the short-term things or even, honestly, small goals, that's what you're going to produce. Like, and so it's okay that you're not there yet, but you are what you're going for. And so I love the idea of James Cameron. Like, He had to figure out how to build all this technology because his goal was so big. Mr. Beast had to figure out how to be really good at a lot of things because his goal was so big. It doesn't really matter that you're there yet. Like, That's not even what matters. But whatever you're going for, the goal shapes the process. The future drives the present. That's just how we all are and so I guess one one invitation, and there's a great quote from Albert Einstein he said, "Imagination is more important than knowledge, and even uh Daniel Gilbert talks a lot about this. he's the one who studied future self is most people spend almost no time even imagining their future self, like we don't even start you know to develop the little like to, like develop the little muscle and so I think journaling is the thing that continues to help me like I, I but I think it's good to like literally like one thing I like about the dolphin example and even I like about your example of like the invisible planes and stuff is <laughs> like imagination and play and playfulness like kids didn't have problems thinking about their future self they were having massive imagination and they were failing even in their imagination and I think you can practice that like 90 like so many of my goals don't occur like because I'm dreaming big and also I then end up playing with them and I always see it like the draft of a book like that's what I'm going for and then like a, a week from now I'm like oh no actually it's there and it's it's constantly iterating so I think it's good to just be playful and like think if you're starting to like have a vision like maybe you want to run a marathon maybe you want to run an ultra marathon who knows Maybe, in a week from now, none of those goals will even matter, but just play with it, have fun with it, like learn to practice uh, thinking about the future and imagining the future and ultimately taking little steps. you know like I just think it's it's just something you have to practice. you have to actually do it like most people you know, and I'm just talking to the listener right now, like how much time in the last week have you actually visualized, thought about, and journaled about your future self, like put yourself in the shoes of your future self and then actually start to analyze from the, like what we talked about before, what 80% of your life right now is actually honestly like lesser goals or in direct opposition to what you want that you're still just kind of maintaining out of habit or fear. And so it's not about just becoming that person today, but it's about being honest that like this is something you want and starting to communicate that. Even language, like starting to talk about it is in a lot of ways how you start to do it. So if you even just start to hear yourself say the words, Maybe I want to run a marathon, or maybe I want to write that book, or maybe I want to go travel the world. That language and starting to talk about it starts to kind of, it, it, your language and your future are very connected.
0: Yeah. You I'd know? also add to that to focus only on what, not on how, because lots of people 100%. will start to obsess. Like, they won't allow themselves to dream of something big or yeah. anything at all, because there's that analytical mind that starts going, how? How? How are you going to do that? If you're only allowing yourself to dream of what, you're going to come up with such bigger concepts.
3: Rather than figuring out the how from the current self, like usually because we don't know the path right now, we get all clogged up and stuff. You, rather than working towards the goal, you actually want to work from the goal, right? And so you think about, it. well, what would need to be true? Like if it was true and if we were doing it, then what? And the, like a big aspect of hope actually is called pathways thinking, is finding pathways of getting where you want to go and there are always a pathway. Like if you if you commit to it, you find it, you you will find a path. It may be a messy path, it'll be a crazy path. But it I'm learning more and more it's better to think and act from the future rather than the present. It's like, if this was true, what what would I need to do to get it? You start pulling the future to you. You start strategizing from the future rather than trying to figure out how to get there from the present. And so that's that's why I think imagine that it's true that you figured it out that he figured out how to live in the mountains how would you make that real you know right. like how did they make it real how did your future self who's already solved it got it and like you just you start to strategize from the outcome you want rather than strategizing towards the outcome you want so you just let the future dictate the strategy rather than the present we all have ideals you know we all have that future self we all have where we want to be but especially as a high achiever and i know that you said a lot of your people are massive high achievers if you're always measuring yourself against your ideal, measuring your current self against your ideal, you're always in the gap. And you can do this about anything. So like this is where Dan really discovered it is because he's always training high level entrepreneurs. They'd get together and he'd say, tell me about the last 90 days, you know, and the entrepreneur starts rattling off all these things that happened. They say, yeah, but honestly, it could have been way better because I could have done this. I could have done that. I could have done this. And so they've just shared their progress, but then they immediately devalue it. Like literally, they just basically make it worth nothing because they said, I should have been here or we could have done this. And so that's the gap is where you're measuring yourself or your situation against where it ideally should be in your mind. And this is, in my opinion, where trauma is, is, is that if you have a trauma, it means you're measuring your past against what you thought it should have been, where you thought you should be and how it should have gone. And you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: Yeah. I do. Yeah. You're really good. Yeah.
3: You're still looking at your past in the gap where you're like, it should have gone this way or I could have been this much farther, blah, blah, blah. You've got this story about the past and you've put it in the gap where it's not up to the ideal that you have. And how Dan explains it is, is that ideals are like the horizon in the desert. Like it gives direction. Ideals are amazing. It's good to have a vision. It's good to have goals. It's good to have your future self. And it provides direction does not matter how many steps or how fast you're running towards that horizon, it's going to keep going. And so if you compare your current self now to that moving horizon and think you should be there, you're always going to be in the gap. Like you're always going to feel like a failure. And and this is why often high achievers are depressed or they are unhappy because they're always measuring themselves against the next ideal, which is that moving target. And then they're always devaluing everything that they've done. They've never, they're never feeling good. <laughs> they never feel successful. And so this This book was primarily uh, about happiness, honestly, along the way, but also counterintuitively. I think that that's actually what makes you more successful in the long run. Yeah, The gain is the opposite. The gain is when you're measuring yourself against nothing external or even against the ideals in your head. You're only measuring yourself against an internal, against where you were in the past. And so you're just measuring yourself against where was I yesterday? Where was I a month ago? Where was I a year ago? I have no comprehension of you and your path. So why would I compare myself to you? Like we have different journeys. We have different futures. We have different paths. And so like if I'm measuring myself against you, I'm going to be in the gap because I can find a million areas where you're doing better than me or I can. And so it's just not relevant. The only thing that's relevant is comparing myself with where I was before. And so now I'm just measuring myself in the gain. I'm seeing my progress. I'm appreciating my progress. I'm valuing my progress. Like even you and I were talking like at the beginning of this conversation, like you were talking about where you want your new studio to be right. and stuff It's like look at your studio now yeah like, compare it with where you were a year <laughs> oh, ago yeah 100%. right it's like you'll, you'll get there yeah, like exactly. you'll get there but exactly. look where you are now it's crazy how and, and and so the gain is just only measuring backwards yeah you know? um, but it's also increasing the value of your experiences it's turning experiences into gains you go through something challenging lose a loved one you know your business fails you know a relationship ends rather than comparing it with what it should have been, what were the gains? How can you turn this into a gain? How can you be better? How can you learn from this? Because you are further than you were before. And now you can, you can turn the experience into a gain. And that's really when a trauma becomes post-traumatic growth is when you're no longer viewing it as something negative that's left you like lesser. Yes. But you're actually better because of it. And you're grateful for it. And you've gained a lot through it. One of the problems, and this is kind of what you were even talking about, is is with high achievers, they're often not their their past becomes blurry. It's it's like literally not it, it doesn't have a lot of texture and development. And so like one of the reasons why the gain is so beautiful is like I can look back on the last seven days and if I actually just took fifteen minutes to think about it, or even ten, what actually occurred in the last seven days? <laughs> right. I'm gonna start to actually literally think about it and journal about it without distractions. Holy crap, a lot just happened. And actually, massive milestones that my past self was like dreaming about. Actually, a lot of those things are now my normal life. Like, okay, that now you've just given it context. You've just given it texture. And like one of the things that Dan talks about that I really like is is that if your past is immeasurable, your future probably is as well. And so like, whoa, yeah, so like one of the things that this does is it allows your past to be measurable. You can actually measure where you are versus where you were before. You can actually quantify to some degree what the heck just happened in the last week. And so as you get better at measuring your own progress, you get better at developing clear criteria for your future. And so the goal is is that you just have more and more like a measurable future, but honestly, in my opinion, way more importantly, a measurable past. And like you can actually look back on the last week or on the last month, and you can actually see where you're different from your past self. It's like, honestly, even myself, like I've been reading some really cool books lately and like I've been doing some hard thinking and I've gone through some changes in the last week past me a week ago versus past me today that's talking to you, I'm pretty different actually. And I can see why and I can see the experiences that are happening. I can see how I'm changing, how I value things and stuff like that. And what I'm going for and what I care about. And so it just allows you to check back and see your progress, value your progress, care about your progress. And interestingly, that actually gives you more confidence and imagination towards the future too.
4: The analogy I use is when when you see someone, you, you know, you might see someone walking down the street and they are so confident and they might, they might be wearing an outfit that is very unconventional. And you're like, wow, like she's rocking that, but I could never do that. Mm-hmm. And what I submit into the universe is why not me? Like, that's what I would love your listeners to take away. Is like Why not you to start that business, take that cooking class, cook, leave the bad relationship? Like, why not mm-hmm. you? And that for me, it was like little by little, I started to chip away at the limiting beliefs and the paralyzing, Mm -hmm. the the way fear is so paralyzing. And Mm -hmm. I started to just, I feel like you have to invite discomfort in as if it's a friend. And I look at discomfort and pride as cousins, and they're all invited to my holiday table, and they're all invited, you know. <laughs> and it's like, and and you know, you know, you're not, not going to exclude any any family. So it's like discomfort mm-hmm. is here, and then with that, we'll also invite pride. Um, so will you, yeah.
0: will you unpack that for listeners? So yeah. how is being uncomfortable? How is pushing yourself into those uncomfortable situations and pride related?
4: Oh my God! I mean, I think it's it's a platform, right? It's a stepping stone. So uh, my friend Rich Roll uses, um, says you have to build the house. So I think every time you get uncomfortable, you're putting one more brick in that foundation. And if you're doing exactly what you already know you can do, how are you pushing the edges? How are you evolving? And I like when folks take an inventory of their skill set and they're honest about it. So it's like, where do you need to level up. Do you have to take a class? Do you need to phone a friend and figure out like, you know, let them see your blind spots. Let them tell you your blind spots. I think once you get uncomfortable with that discomfort, you're more willing to kind of dive a little deeper into the thing, mm-hmm. either the tough conversations or, you know, all the things that kind of we avoid, whether it's your taxes or, you know, having a conversation with your partner. My resolution for this year, and I'm and I'm inv- inviting everyone to be part of this self-love club. Um, if my, my resolution is if it does not raise my vibration, my spirit, my energy, or raise my bank account balance, the answer is N-O, N-O, no, yeah. no. <laughs> Yeah. And I think we talk
0: about this a lot. It's this idea of knowing what is valuable to you. Not what is valuable to your sister or your friends or the other women, but what is valuable to you. And once you know that, it's so much easier to hold on to that no.
4: Oh, for sure. And I think when we when we hold on to the no, it protects our yeses. And I think so much so many of us are trying to figure it out, right? It's like, yeah, when, you, you know, somebody could listen to every single one of your podcasts, read both of your books cover to cover, but you have to, instead of trying to figure it out, at some point, you just have to start acting it out. But in order mm-hmm. to act it out, you have to carve out enough space, whether it's five minutes or an hour a day, enough space for your brain to go there. Right? So that's like the, that's the, discom- that's the discomfort that, that I think feeds me every day. Because I'm like, if I am always... The smartest in the room. If I'm always the loudest in the conversation, if I'm always feeling good, am I really reaching? Probably not. Ha- having an awareness that you ch- want to make that change is actually a, a huge step. And I want to remind folks that whether you feel stuck or you feel like you're at the very beginning of the journey, that plateau, that feeling of stasis, is just a launching pad. It's just an ability to rise up. Right, rise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I was. I would say two practical things. You want to find the type of movement that you could learn to like notice I said learn to like because that first workout, that 10th workout, even that thousandth workout, they're not necessarily going to feel good because you're working hard. So back to that Mm -hmm. thing. So, you know, just because your friend is taking you to that dance class, maybe that's not your jam. Maybe, maybe it's yoga, maybe it's cycling, maybe it's bar. There are so many ways to move. Um, You know, obviously my preferred modalities are cycling and running, but that doesn't have to be your jam. So start to be curious about ways that you might like to work out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally. That's the first step. Um, Get curious about your own greatness, like an Indiana Jones Explorer, like how can I be so dope? Uh, And the second is really telling folks about your goal and letting them support you, right? So whether it's calling your sister over to get that babysitter, whether it's telling your partner, you know what, I really need to take 15 minutes to walk around – walk around the neighborhood after dinner. So sometimes carving out that time feels really selfish. And also it's even more daunting when you feel like it's new, you're uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. you're impacting other people in your life. You don't want to be that person alone at the gym or alone at the class. So there are a lot of impediments. So I'd say like creating, A, letting folks uh, in your life know about this goal and B, Setting up yourself up for success. So don't sign up for the gym that's 30 miles away from your house if you can avoid it. Maybe <laughs> it is a task that you do in your living room. And totally. celebrate the small victories. We get really overwhelmed when we're like, oh my gosh, it's X amount of pounds or I have to do this distance or this. Just start with 10 minutes because everybody yeah. 10 minutes. Um, yeah. So I would say start small and celebrate the victories because it, it it really is just little by little amounts to a lot. I live my life like I am in a Rocky Balboa movie montage. <laughs> I that and like maybe like fifty percent Rocky Balboa, fifty percent like on stage with Beyonce at her on her home yes, TV, yes. performance. A hundred percent. Um. So you know, the, my point is make the mental movie real. And this applies to literally everything in your life. So something I've learned as as an athlete and getting into the mental space of an athlete is starting to visualize that literal or figurative finish line. And sometimes that takes a little bit of a, you know, it takes takes creativity because sometimes inserting yourself as the hero in in your own movie is a little bit weird, but like you are. So Mm -hmm. might as well start to play with those images and, and dreams in ways that inspire you because- um, we can really can be so vicious internally. So it's like flip it on its head. What yep. if it we're all going to work out? What would that look like? How would you feel? You know. Um, so that as as an athlete, as an ultramarathoner, visualing visualizing the finish line has been critical. But then mm-hmm. I extrapolate that a little bit bigger, and it's like, okay, what goes on my vision board? Okay, you know, in all the ways that you work with your your subscribers to kind of write it down and make an action plan, like. For me, that mental acuity has been um, has been my biggest gift as an athlete. Then it also gives you an ability. There aren't many things in life that allow us the the space to actually hear our own thoughts. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, Yeah, totally. Whether it's social media or the car radio or your kids running around or your you know whatever it is, but your coworker, there's a lot of noise. And for me, my north star has always been. Running allowed my in my inner monologue to be my north star rather than like mm-hmm. the next thing and the fragment and the next email and the and I still get caught up in that too of course I'm human but my anchor really is is movement it's really powerful when we see people like yourself holding space you know what I mean like I think what you've done with your books and your, I mean, just all the ways that you access your community, our community is you're just like, I'm going to hold this space for you until t- you wake up again tomorrow and decide, all right, I'm going to try again, you know, yes. and I think that is, that's also what we're doing at Peloton. You know, it's like every little workout, every little time that you're chipping away at that limiting belief, it's like, you've won. But, you know, we're, we're humans. we got to wake up the next day and then look for inspiration one more, again and again and again. And that's, that's the beauty of um, that willpower muscle is that we, we get to continually strengthen it.
5: When you want an indulgence, go out and earn it, and I put extra time in. And that's sort of the way I approach my diet. And, and I guess a lot of times if you get your fire burning when you're the way that you need it burning, where it's really constantly working for you, it mm-hmm. allows you to to have those days even even more that you can that you can sort of cheat a little bit. I think for me, it was almost a total reset, and and what was the most important thing was the people who were around me got on board. Mm-hmm. You know, the camaraderie of of my crew and my band is so important to me, and it's such a huge part of well, it's the biggest part of my success and what allows me to be able to do what I do professionally but but also physically and and everybody got on board I mean it's sort you you have to build a community around you who are supportive and and you know those people instantly when you start on your journey who are who's going to be there to support you and boy all of my guys are there to support me and and we have workouts every single day mm-hmm. when we're on the road. Yeah. We we call it our gorilla yard, but we have everything <laughs> out on the out on the ground. We have the battle ropes and the tires and sledgehammers and kettlebells and all those things. And and we go through routines every afternoon. That's awesome. Um, and they they're out there with me. And, and the good thing about it is, it, it's a time for us to really talk and laugh and share. Maybe some of our personal trials that we're going through, because it's sort of a sacred place for us when we're doing that, and a a good chance to talk as friends and not as boss and employees. Um, And it's also a good time to talk about what we're doing professionally on the stage. We come up with ideas all the time; our brains are working. We're talking; we're free. Everybody throws in ideas, which I always appreciate because the thing that I've learned through the almost thirty years that I've been doing this is that boy, there there are people. If you're smart, there are people who work for you, have a lot better ideas than you do sometimes, and you need to pay attention and listen. And those are the times when those avenues sort of open up between us, and we can really talk about things and and have open minds to each other about what we need to do professionally, but also personally what we need help with and and what kind of support we need from each other. I try not to ever miss a day of working out Mm -hmm. because I know in my busy schedule every now and then days are going to pop up, out of nowhere whether it be personally or professionally that I'm just not gonna have time and those those days are forced upon me where I don't have time to work out so I, I, I never plan a, an off day and I never try I try not to miss a day now some days are lighter than others and I always have a saying that some days are diamonds and some days ain't yeah. <laughs> but but you still have to do something and you always typically you always feel better after you do something but when I'm getting prepared. To either go on tour or maybe do a movie or or some sort of a maybe an award show or some sort of appearance, there is a routine that I fall into, which goes back to that diet that I was talking about earlier, which I will I get strict on during those times, and 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 then I'll do usually I'll do two a day workouts. I will do one in the morning mm-hmm. and one in the afternoon, and and in between the meals that I explained earlier, I'll, I'll add protein shakes to the in between those, and I'll bring in Roger Wan. Who I talk about a lot in the book, who's sort of my fitness guru. I call him Yoda. Mm -hmm. He he really really dials in what I do and gets me out of some of the bad habits that I get into when I'm on my own. And you know, you get a little lazy and you start doing the same things over and over again, and maybe your form gets a little out of whack. And he comes in when I'm getting ready to tour or or do the things I'm talking was talking about earlier. And that sort of dials in my my shape, and he calls it body shaping. He sort of looks at me and sees where I need work, and we start working on it that way. And so I'll I'll get into a morning routine, and then, you know, the rest of the afternoon is usually spent rehearsing with my band, and then I'll come home and do an afternoon routine.
0: I think that it's something, if, if listeners don't know this, it's definitely something that I didn't understand 10, 15 years ago, but... People think that you get your energy, like, oh, if you get sleep, or and that matters. But there's this line that I love that says, a power plant doesn't have energy, it makes energy. And I think it's the same for us. Like, if you want the energy to be able to keep up with an intense schedule and you're on stage and you're doing press and all the stuff, you actually have to work harder than people realize.
5: Absolutely. I mean, gosh, if, if I don't work hard – I, I feel it, and mm-hmm. my band has begun to feel that. And we talk about that all the time. We talk about that. Some of the days where we don't get a chance to work out, or d- don't get a chance to work out as hard as we really want to, that we're sluggish on stage that night. And we get asked the question all the time. So, certainly, when we have you know sort of opening acts or new people on the road with us that haven't seen the schedule that we that we keep. I mean, gosh, when we're on tour, when we're on the road, we literally do three workouts a day. Wow. Now, not everybody does that, but a majority of us do that. We'll start in the morning, and mostly it's with stretching and yoga in the mornings to really it's a long walk stretching and yoga just to get our bodies warmed up and stretched out and but it but it's not uh it's more active yoga i guess where where there's some muscle building involved with it and then then after lunch. Before lunch, we usually run the steps in the stadiums or the arena wherever we happen to be playing or run the lawn oh, wow. in the amphitheaters that we're playing. And that's our midday thing. And then after that, we have lunch, and then we take a little bit of break and everybody rests a little bit. And then usually around 3.30 or so in the afternoons when we start our sort of – it's not really – we we call it CrossFit, but it's not really classic CrossFit. It's a combination of sort of, um, I don't know, functional fitness and and throwing things around um, in the afternoon, and that's our third workout of the day. And if we don't do that, if we don't get those in, we we feel it on stage. But we look around sometimes at night while we're on stage and see the energy that we have, mm-hmm. and uh, the energy which transfers into the audience, and it's Absolutely. A sort of a, a symbiotic relationship when that happens. And we know that what we put, the work we put in that day, is really what makes our show what it is. And and that's what we explain to to artists or other acts or other crews and bands to come out on the road with us. And they ask, how can you put all of that work in during the day and have enough energy for the night? And I said, well, if we, we've come to realize that if we don't put that work in and, and get that work in during the day that we don't have the energy that we need it.
0: Absolutely.
5: I think for me, it ultimately goes back to, to feeling like I'm not, I always have something to learn. Feeling like I'm, I want to live up to the success that I've had and try to get my abilities equal to what I think my or my abilities as as I see them equal to what the perception is of what I do um I I always want to work harder and learn more I mean I guess it goes back to the athlete in me that I always feel like that there's another Super Bowl in me so I want mm-hmm. to keep working hard in order to get the opportunity to opportunity to do that and now you know, I feel like, boy, I feel fortunate, grateful, lucky in a lot of ways that to have had the avenue of success that I've had, and the, the doors open up for me that I've had open up for me, and and uh, the life that I've had, and certainly, gosh, country music has given me everything good in my life. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't married, met, married, and had the family that I have with my incredibly. Perfect wife that I that I had if it wasn't for country music. So mm-hmm. I feel like I owe a lot to country music, and I owe a lot to my fans, and I owe a lot to myself to work harder. Um, I feel like I'm just now understanding what it is that I do and how to do it. And then there's the flip side of, um, you know, my children being young during that during those times, and now that they're 22, 21, and almost 18 years old. I I kind of want to keep doing it because I want them to enjoy it as young adults, you know, and 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 see what it is that I do and and see how hard I work and maybe set an example for them to work hard in their lives, which they all do. I'm not one of these. Maybe one day I will, and and certainly maybe when I'm finished, I'll do that. But gosh, I I'm not very good at looking behind, looking back. I'm gosh I, I have a hard time putting a timeline together of when things happened and what went on and and um maybe I have a maybe it's like a quarterback who who throws a lot of interceptions and has a short memory so they can keep moving forward yeah. and keep playing hard. Um I tend to look way forward more than I look back. So every project to me is almost like another chance to try to step up my game and prove that I can get better. And that's what I really try to do and, and and uh, and I try to create a sort of a tapestry of life with every record that I make. I've always had to believe that the past is past, and I'm moving forward. But there have been certainly, um, ex- I guess, ex- existential moments that have stood out in my career that have pushed, that have sort of raised the bar and elevated what I was doing. Certainly, right at the very beginning of my career, I can remember a moment where we had. Indian Outlaw out, and I had booked, gosh, I had booked a ton. I was playing a lot like a small (laughs) clubs. Yep. Um, Clubs that held like maybe 500 or 800 people. And we were booked pretty solid doing those clubs. And then Indian Outlaw came out, which was off of my second album. The first album didn't really do anything. And and, uh, when that song came out, it blew up really big really quickly but what I did want to do is because I thought maybe this will be the only song that I have that does anything. So I didn't cancel any of my club shows because I didn't <laughs> want to make any of those guys angry. Cause I thought I'll have to go back and play these clubs again. And if I cancel these shows, then maybe I won't have good relationships with these people. So I kept all of my club shows. So we were doing clubs that held 500, 600, 700 people. And, we would show up at the club and there would be lines almost a mile long to get in. Oh, my gosh. And they would be packed to the rafters and there would be 2,000 people outside the club just listening through the doors, the outside of the club. And that's when we realized, gosh, something's really changing. Something's and then we would on, do, yeah. be doing stadiums. I mean, not stadiums, but arenas on the weekends sometimes as well. So we would do maybe a th- Wednesday, Thursday night, we would be playing a 500, 600-seat club. And then on Friday and Saturday, we'd be playing a 15,000-seat a, a arena at that time. But the moment we really felt like something was changing is we were playing Houston, Texas one night. And it was probably an 800-seat club, and it was packed to the rafters. And the club owners had set up big screen TVs outside in the parking lots. And the parking lots were packed full of people. And we started singing Don't Take the Girl <laughs> and everybody in the club. We just quit playing and everybody in the club. And we could even hear from the outside people singing along to that wow. song. And my band and I sort of looked around at each other and said, my gosh, there's something really going on here. Maybe we won't have to worry about our rent for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, There are people who work any number of jobs here in Nashville who can sing circles around me, who are better artists than I'll ever be, that nobody will ever hear. Um, So I I feel like that there's a responsibility not only to my fans, to myself, to my family, to my creative instincts, but also to the people that'll never have a chance to try to get better, try to improve, try to make a better record every time I go out, try to make a better show every time I go out. So I'm not... Not taking advantage of the opportunities that I'm given. I hope I keep it, and I hope I nurture it, and I hope I constantly find in ways like whether it's writing books, doing movies, uh, talking to you, uh, sort of, get putting myself in a position to meet to meet people who teach me something constantly. I hope I always stoke that fire for my creativity, which is why I do all these things, because it does help my creativity and expands Mm -hmm. my creativity and expands the way I look at life and the way I look at my career. And one of these days, artistically, that may go away, but hopefully it stays with me forever in just the way I live my life. I'm an average singer at best, but to sing harmony, which I can't do naturally at all, but to learn how to sing harmony with my wife, who's one of the best singers on the planet, Mm -hmm. that is one of the biggest... um, things that has improved my career i think more than anything is to learn to sing with her she's taught me so much as a singer um and she's an instinctive singer who doesn't really it just comes naturally to her to step out there and just put on a great show and sing for me it's it's funny because she's sort of the type a and and uh and the uh, bass and the rock in our family when it comes to everyday life and 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 um Real life, I guess, but when it comes to work, she likes to be spontaneous and because it all comes so natural to her and I like every and I'm type A when it comes to work. I like everything <laughs> on a schedule, being in the same place every night at the right times when you're performing all those sorts of things, so she's taught me to loosen up a little bit on stage and and be a little more spontaneous, and maybe I've taught her to be at least be where the lights are supposed to be when we're on stage at the same time. So I've learned so much from her by stepping outside of my comfort zone and learning how to sing.
0: The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew
4: Weller and Jack Noble.